So the last time we talked on the last episode of A Little Cerebral, we talked about how kids with ADHD have a hard time with effortful control, emotional clarity, reactive control, and emotional repair. And then I also, I think at the end, we were talking about how a lot of times they misinterpret um, facial expressions that, you know, they misinterpret um, ones that are neutral as more hostile, which is something that kids with trauma do, um, or they, or they misinterpret the actual face. Like they, they incorrectly guess the emotion, which you would expect, you know, a lot of kids with autism do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know why that is, but that's a thing. That's what this article says. And I think that's, I mean, I, I know why that is for autism and trauma, but I don't know why that is for ADHD, but that's what the article says. So I believe them. Um, <laughs> if Barkley endorses it, then I say it's right. Um, <laughs> just don't, I think the takeaway is never question, never question never, anything. No, don't question <laughs> academics like Barkley. He knows all. Escape avoidance. It means you want to get away from something, basically. Like you don't want to do something. You don't want to have to endure something. So you escape escape avoidance. It's I mean, like don't when, we all have that? Like I do yeah, that. <laughs> I think a lot of us do it. I think it's to what extent, right? Is it I think it means that it's not like every once in a while. I think it means that that happens a lot. Um, and they're saying for children who have an ADHD diagnosis, they do escape avoidance a lot. They tend, yeah, that they tend to do that more. I think it would probably depend personally on the subtype. If I were going to look at this, I'd be like, well, it might depend on the subtype and it might depend on um, gender. And it might also depend on the severity of ADHD. But who am I to question Barkley? So that's <laughs> so one of the things they talk about then is like so you tend to like basically get in trouble a lot because you have these big upset reactions and you can't get your mind off of it and you can't really cope with it very well and you might have an upset reaction because you feel like somebody's wronging you because you're misinterpreting their face or the app, like they call it affects. The affect would be like the emotion that they're showing you. You misinterpret it. So like now you, you feel like they're being so mean to me, but actually you're the one who's being so mean to them really without realizing it because you're misinterpreting it. Right. So, you this- know, I, it's interesting because I have a, um, a friend who was as an adult, she was diagnosed with autism and she was telling me how she has such a hard time in Um, like emotional kind of situations. Like she doesn't know how to handle her emotions. She doesn't know how to label them. And she often misinterprets sort of like what's going on. Um, Like there was an incident where she said something that was offensive to me. And so I was upset, but she like totally didn't get that. And my reaction to her was offensive. Like she took that as offensive without understanding that like her words were first offensive. Um, so it's really interesting because I think that it's, if you put your, your position, like, you know, you think about your child, if you have a child who has ADHD or any kind of sensory processing, this big upset emotion, emotional reactions, and you don't talk about your emotions, you don't show your emotions to your child. So they really don't have, they might be predispositioned to have like a poor emotional awareness, and then they're not taught it or exposed to it or experience it. So then they go to school where they're supposed to be able to read all their classmates' reactions and interact with these children and have these innate 
like emotional responses and cues and be able to do that. And they just don't have the skills. And, and can you imagine how much of your energy, your cognitive energy goes towards making sure that you can read social um, like cues. And I, and I see this all the time, not just with kids with ADHD, even though that's what this article is about, but with children who have sensory processing disorder, they are in trouble all of the time just because they don't understand like what's going on or they're not paying attention to kind of like the social cues of the group. And they really struggle with friendships a lot of the time because they don't, again, I don't know, there's never just one thing. So there's a lot of things in play. But I certainly think that if, if this is your child, even just practicing, like showing that you can experience emotions, that being like sad and angry, it's not bad. It's just we have this range of emotions. And this is what, you know, they all look like. I think that's necessary, but not sufficient. I agree with you. And I think, um, I think that like, I, I, I was actually wondering with this, with the misinterpreting the facial cues, if that was, um, if you have people reacting to you negatively, like let's say you're a person who's really hyper or really impulsive, or you have these mm-hmm. upset reactions and like you have kids, like you've, you know, your peers and, and maybe teachers who do these sort of micro level, like quick sort of, they give these, these cues that show that you're like, you're you're bad essentially. Right. Or like you're a kid who's causing problems or we don't like you. Not that they would ever say that, but it over time, when you have enough of those micro level interactions, like the same kind of thing where you think about like attunement, all those micro level interactions over time, Mm -hmm. you're going to start to see yourself as a bad kid. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so you might assume because you're so used to getting negative feedback, maybe you do interpret neutral stuff or negative. Um, I was actually going to say with the sensory process, with the like parents modeling that, I think it's really important. I don't think it's enough. I think um, there are some people. and, And so again, it depends, right? Like, so I would say this is probably true for sensory processing disorder. It's, I think it's often true for autism, where you have poor interoceptive awareness, like that awareness in your body mm-hmm. of how you're doing. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people can't connect the physiological with the subjective feeling state. And so mm-hmm. you don't know how you're doing, right? You're like, well, I don't really know how I'm doing right now. And so mm-hmm. I think there's that piece where you, like, you know, there's usually increased heart rate, or you might have racing thoughts, or you might feel like your skin flush, or you might feel kind of like, some people feel like, you know, they have a, like constriction in their chest when they're anxious or they might feel like their muscles tense when they're mad and all of those types of things I think are really important. Um, I think biofeedback is really good for that reason. And so is mindfulness, but I feel like before you can do mindfulness, a lot of times you have to do biofeedback and that's, mm-hmm. um, there was that mightier, um, thing, the game I talked about that one time, but, yeah. um, I've actually, and it has a lot of evidence behind it. I would say that's good for some kids. And, but if you're a pretty complex kid with a lot of significant needs, it might not be enough. I think for, I can say for my youngest, like it wasn't enough, really the medication probably should have happened first. And Mm -hmm. then the, um, then the mightier thing, because then he would have been calmed down enough to at least notice and make those. Right. You need to be able to be regulated enough to attend and take in information. Going back yeah. to this friend, too, who has autism, which I think is interesting. She was talking about her emotions. So I was like, well, how do you feel? And she was like, I have no idea how I feel yeah. all of the time. She said, I just feel like I'm kind of on high alert all the time. But it's interesting because it takes her 
And I'm just using her as an example because she's an adult who can voice this. Whereas I think children, you know, like I, I have never been able to have a conversation really about this other than like, what are you feeling? And they're like, I don't know. Um, but she was saying that it takes the emotion instead of having being like at this micro level emotion where you're like, oh, I'm starting to get frustrated and we can kind of feel that we're like, Ugh. she doesn't feel that until it's like this full blown, like, I'm so mad, like this rage. And then she's like, oh, I think I'm angry. So if you think of, a, you know, your child, if they have these like emotional outbursts, it could be that they're not recognizing like the kind of those earlier stages because it's like such a spectrum and and usually a lot of us just don't jump to rage like there's little things even you know throughout the day that are kind of making yeah "Ah." yeah totally I I I believe that we actually had a conversation in the autism episodes about this well one of the autism episodes about like that's why people want to avoid social gatherings because they're just misinterpreting stuff all the time or it's like such it is such energy, like they're just drained. It's so taxing. Yeah. yeah. And so it's good to have that perspective and know that that's kind of like maybe where that's coming from. I'm yeah. going to get back to this because I know we only have a half hour and I want to make sure I get through everything. Um, so anyway, so they, so kind of like what we were talking about, you have these repeated failures and social rejection. And then, um, and that sounds so mean, like repeated failures, you know, with ADHD, but really, I think what it means is social failures, like these social things that don't go well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and they're also less well equipped to shut down. So then because of that, sorry, you have these negative intrusive thoughts, which are just these thoughts that are like, well, negative, and they just kind of keep coming at you and they're hard to shut out. And people with ADHD, as we talked about, kind of perseverate on thoughts like that. So then you can't, you can't like get rid of that. And so then it's sort of, be, this is where they call it that um, the cycle, the maladaptive coping cycle. So then that feeds further negative emotion and then you get more angry. Um, and so they also talk then about like the cycle of academic failure because, and they didn't differentiate if these were kids who also had learning disabilities because it's really common for kids with ADHD to also have learning disabilities or if it was just ADHD. Mm-hmm. But they talk about a cycle of academic failure and the authors hypothesize that frustration of like having, you know, they call it failure. So remember, this is like academic terms, just messing up academically over and over again can result in disruptive behaviors. And then Mm -hmm. and then those disruptive behaviors can be due to the poor coping with you know, the repeated feeling like you're messing up academically and socially. I think and a lot of this too kind of snowballs, right? It's like even yeah. for all of us, you can like everybody I think listening to this can relate to this. It's just on a scale for a child who has ADHD, this will be happening like happening to you maybe like a hundred times more than it would be maybe to someone who is doesn't have that diagnosis. Yeah. And and right. So th- and that's why they called it that. And then you get into like the what's going on chemically, right? So people with ADHD have a less, they say a less functional dopamine reward pathway. Basically the dopamine system isn't working very well in the reward system of the brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And so because of that, they have reduced, um, they aren't as responsive to rewards. In some ways, I think they're very responsive to rewards. In other ways, they're not. And that's why a lot of times like these sticker charts that people do for people with ADHD, (laughs) They don't work. I mean, they can be great at collecting data. And I think a lot, I've seen people use these 
these charts um, a lot in schools. And I've used them myself, but I think we have to be thoughtful about how we use them. And you have to think about your audience because they may not work if you have yeah, right. a not so functional rewards, uh, dopamine, um, what do they call it? Not so functional dopamine reward pathway. And I've had um, a lot of parents say that, like they've tried when they come to me, maybe through ABA or something, they've tried sticker tar- charts and it hasn't worked because they're like, my child just doesn't care. Yeah. Or they care, but like they, 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 I mean, you have to be able to keep like the reward has to be motivating enough. So maybe they care, but not enough, but also you have to be able to stick with the idea of that reward in your brain at all times. And if you're like, think like they talk about people with ADHD having two times there's now, and there's not mm-hmm. now. And so right. if, if whatever is happening now is way more interesting and more rewarding than this idea of this abstract sticker chart, then yeah. It's not yeah, right. Exactly. Well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is, and so, um, another really interesting thing is like, you know, how there's like, they talk about the, um, praise, like the praise to criticism. I don't think that's the right word, but basically the praise ratio, you know, when you give corrective feedback, you also need Mm -hmm. praise and how like all of it, like for all people, there is sort of like this ratio. I think it's three to one, um, for, for the um for people with ADHD they need more praise to mm-hmm. negative feedback like just generally that's what they need and i believe it's because of that reward system but then they're also not getting as much probably as most people like in addition yeah. to that, they need more praise they're probably getting less praise because if they're getting in trouble all the time yeah totally a lot more mm-hmm. yeah and so and then so i thought that was interesting and then um another thing is like do you know what a performance versus a mastery goal is no okay so performance goal is like you get well you get praise you get a reward you did something and people are like yay good job versus mastery is you're doing it for that internal feeling of i want to be good yeah okay right? that makes sense yeah so in schools, you know, we talk a lot about mastery goals like you know we want kids to be intrinsically motivated to do things but you know, that's not really how kids with ADHD work. And I'm making generalizations here. Obviously, there are going to be kids who do not fit within this. And I would say I'm definitely more motivated by mastery. Um, And so again, I'm not going to try to say that everybody who has ADHD fits within this, but we're saying as a general rule, and that lots of kids, and so this should be considered when you're thinking about the kind of praise you give, um, that they do better with performance goals. So they, uh, that means that those academic failures become like more like social failures to them because mm-hmm. they're not just like, oh, you know, I really didn't learn division and it would have really, you know, been good to learn that. I like it when I learn something. It's more like, oh my gosh, like I didn't do well on that. I'm a bad kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like it becomes about their character mm-hmm. um, to them. So then this kind of obviously is going to set them up for disappointment. Um, And it may, when you kind of see yourself as this bad kid because of the kind of, um, because of the cycle and snowball thing that we were talking about earlier. And then this performance goal type thing, it might lead them to seek out um, peers who don't value academic success. And then that's going to further reinforce that like lack of academic achievement. And, and that's not even, that's not even addressing like the fact that it's hard to attend to task when you have ADHD. So it's hard to learn sometimes, or, you know, the, just that there's a correlation 
um, between ADHD and learning disabilities, or actually a better way for me to say that would be that lots of kids with ADHD also have learning disabilities. I thought that was interesting. So anyway, that is, that's kind of like all I have on this. There's a few other things like that. There's a frustration threshold. You have this processing issue and then you have, so you're struggling, then you have experiences kind of put on top of that. And you're put in this, especially this learning situation, this academic situation that really isn't tailored to your needs and then you have these expectations and and these social um these like invisible social cues that you're supposed to follow and um yeah it's hard so here's what here's what they suggest and i actually put some of my own stuff in here too but they think that um and we already talked about like labeling emotions right and i think that's really important i think you were right on Mm -hmm. when you said that family members should do that. And then I think also, in addition to that, it might be helpful to look at something like biofeedback. Um, And of course, medication, right? Like medication um, for for kids, not necessarily as much for adults, but it's just been shown to be the most effective intervention for ADHD baseline. Mm -hmm. And then like long-term long-term success, it's more about teaching, it's more uh, what they call academic coaching and teaching kids to build goals and things like that. That's more of the long-term um, strategy that gives you success. So build a wide variety of coping skills um, and then focus on broadening coping strategies and emotional regulation. So not just like one or two things, but like all these things that they could choose from and give them the practice, have them rehearse it when they're not in a stressful situation because when you're in a stressful situation, it's hard to come up with new and creative ways to respond. And, you know, kids with ADHD obviously are going to be feeling pretty stressed a lot of the time emotionally. Mm-hmm. So over-rehearse these coping strategies, some of that might need to involve modeling what should happen, role play. Um, I'm going to go back again to second step. Like I know I keep talking about that, but I, I actually really believe that Part of the reason it's so effective, it's got really engaging visual content where kids are, you know, going through real life situations and it's funny and then they're trying to resolve it. So and I that's the like, program that you use. That's an academic program that's focused um, on. Yeah, it's social emotional. But you use it in the school. Yeah. 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 Um, and then so they talk about if then strategies. If I feel like blank, then I will. Um, and, and this should not just be like, Hey, we're going to write this down on a worksheet because don't give kids with ADHD worksheets. Don't do that. Don't do that in your small group with them. Because <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's more like a, how about like, maybe you write it down and then you guys practice that gets built into the coping skills over rehearsal and modeling that I just talked about. Um, And the reason they suggest that is that that's been associated with a decrease in the negative intrusive thoughts, because then it can become that positive self-talk. Like they're, they're mad and they can say, if this happens, I will, whatever. And if all you do is repeat that over and over to yourself and that becomes that distraction from the thing that's pissing you off. And then you're not like having such negative intrusive thoughts just by virtue of being a distraction it would be effective. Mm-hmm. But of course, it would also potentially be effective because hopefully you'll do the thing that you are saying to yourself. Um, and then during an immediate intrusive episode, so this is, those are the negative intrusive thoughts, you want to encourage them to focus on positives like um, you know, flexibility and, and gratitude. Now, I'm going to be honest. 
you have to know that they're having a negative intrusive thought. So they would have to already be so dysregulated that they are to the point where they are voicing these negative intrusive thoughts to you. Like, you know, they've, and, and when that happens, they may have already been kicked out of class. So by that point, I kind of feel like, okay, maybe that's a great way to interrupt it um, when it's happening. I think that you could practice, maybe practice this at home where you're put in a situation like, like, okay, like I know that, and you can kind of make up a situation, like how do you feel? And they might not know, but you can kind of, you know, walk them through it. And like, you know, this is kind of what happens. You can recreate that negative situation in a safe way where they're not going to like get in trouble. And, and you're right. Like when you have a negative thought, you're usually, that's usually coupled with like rage or like anger and your emotions really do take over everything. So it's very hard to think when you're angry. Yeah, it is. <laughs> least, well, it I is. can't think when I'm angry. <laughs> well, I mean, right. Like you have hormones blocking access to the cortex. Yeah. Well, right. I'm not like, wow, let me stop and think about this. I'm yeah. like, well, actually, let me punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, right. Like I think that if you're a parent and a kid was doing this at home, that's where you would really have the most intervention when you're starting to see some of that negativity and anger that may not be as likely to happen in the classroom. Some classrooms it does. And it, ideally it would, because that's where you would actually really start to change some of these behaviors. But teachers are usually really, really busy and can't. And this is like where I'm like, train paras, train paras to like know how to do all of these things. Yeah. Because right. you can train paras to do some of this. And then mm-hmm. the paras can work with kids. Paras are like the teacher's aides in the classroom. So there's something called dialectical behavior therapy. And it was developed for people with borderline personality disorder. But I wrote this as like, they had cognitive behavioral strategies can help overcome negative intrusive thoughts. And I was like, dialectical behavior therapy can too. I feel like dialectical behavior therapy is under um, utilized with people who have ADHD. And because I think a lot of the like, so people with borderline personality disorder, often have these really big emotional reactions. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, so do people with ADHD, like you can, and they're really pragmatic, really clear, concrete skills to use that you can over rehearse. So I feel like it should be used more with ADHD. Um, And then you want to build up a sense of accomplishment and social success by providing specific positive feedback. And remember, they need more than most people. And even though we all love the idea of mastery goals, if it's a performance goal, then fine. Like, oh, you got a, you got a really good, like you got this many points out of this on, like, I know that we talk about growth mindset instead of, wow, you tried really hard. And yes, eventually that's great. And eventually we want to do that. And it's still good to have the entire class doing that because most people would really benefit from it. And then the kids are at least hearing that language. So maybe eventually you transfer from this like performance goal to mastery where it's like about growth. But in the meantime, baby steps, you might mm-hmm. have to talk about, you got like 18 out of 20 on this and you mm-hmm. got a really good score. And that might be like, what's motivating. So my son, my youngest son is super competitive about his, um, his Garmin, his like step tracker. Mm-hmm. And he's always asking my husband, what's your score? Instead of like, how many steps did you have? Like, what's mm-hmm. your score? And it reminded me of another kid who has ADHD at a school I worked at. And there was this amazing teacher who was 
not his teacher. She was a couple grades above. And, and this kid with ADHD would get sent on errands because he needed to get his wiggles out. He needed to move. He needed to go up and down the stairs. And so he gets sent on errands when he wasn't, you know, missing instructional time and he'd get all these steps. And like this one teacher would always stop and be like, how many steps do you have? Even though she wasn't his teacher. And I was thinking like, that's totally a performance goal, right? Like she's asking him for a yeah. number and he was super motivated by that. Yeah. yeah right. Anyway, I thought that was cute. That's a, yeah. No, that is. And then just remember that um, to address kids as they are developmentally in the moment. So panicked people can have a temporarily reduced mental age. So you don't respond to a kid as if they're 12 when they're acting like they are seven. Two. You respond yeah. to them like yeah. they're seven. doesn't mean you always treat them like they're seven, but when they're in that moment of panic, you respond in that moment of panic like they are where they would be developmentally, not where they are chronologically. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, right. That's all I have. That makes sense. Yeah. No, I think that's a great. And that's the end of the article. Awesome. Um, Thanks. Thanks for dropping some knowledge. Yeah, I'm so full of knowledge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know we have to get moving. It's the like knowledge clarity on yeah. the I have one question. Are, yeah. did you, are you skiing? Like, are you guys going to ski this year up in your um, area of skiing in Vermont? I would think so. There's a, um, it's a, a like a reservation oh, model. Doing it Eldora too. I don't mind. So I don't know how that's going to work. I'll tell you, it's kind of a pain in the ass because um, I didn't know that there was a reservation model and I found out too late. And then I had to like reserve everything after everybody got all the good times. So yeah. because there's like time slots for parking. Yeah. So I, I wish they would have like emailed or messaged or something. Maybe they did and I didn't see it, which is entirely possible. Well, this is pot part of Vail Resort. So it's pretty well known, I think. Oh, very really? well known. Mm -hmm. Your resort yeah. that you live near is near Vail? Not near Vail, sorry. No, it's owned, Vail by, <laughs> it's owned by Vail. Yeah. yeah, that's not what I meant. And that the one you live by is owned by I'm not close by Vail to Vail resort. at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, okay. So, well, I hope you get to go skiing. We're going to go for the first time Sunday. Hopefully, you guys. Yay. Awesome. Are you Have kids, fun. Are you going to get your kids like little pass um no they're free which is kind of nice um oh. so but I'll probably just take them like on the my parents of a little hill oh um, really that's so cute and they'll just have yeah. their two little skis I mean they're only cool. like they're gonna be two and four so it's, it's not so like we're cute. gonna raid yeah yeah <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right well thanks Claire. all right okay okay bye talk to you later bye-bye